Hi, and welcome to the Veterans Legal Lowdown, brought to you by Chisholm, Chisholm, and Kilpatrick, a law firm representing veterans nationwide. In each episode, we break down a different VA disability topic or share our take on the latest VA benefit news. This is the Veterans Legal Lowdown with Chisholm, Chisholm, and Kilpatrick. I'm Maura Clancy. I'm Barbara Cook. And I'm Michael Estrito. And today we're talking about TDIU. Today we're talking about TDIU, which stands for a total disability rating based on individual unemployability. So that's a lot of words, it's a lot of big words. We're here today to focus on breaking down what TDIU is, what the parameters and requirements for TDIU are, and types of evidence that are relevant to TDIU claims, among other things. Um, Mike, why don't you get us started today, please, if you wouldn't mind, and could you please tell us um, what TDIU is generally? Sure, Uh, so thanks, Maura. Um, As you said, TDIU stands for a total disability rating based on individual unemployability. Um, This is a form of a VA compensation benefit, which pays at the 100% rate. Um, And essentially it boils down to whether the veteran's service-connected disabilities prevent him or her from obtaining and maintaining what is called substantially gainful employment. And so um, something that you mentioned before was that this is an alternative to a 100% scheduler rating. So is it correct to say that a person who is deemed entitled to TDIU benefits is paid at the same rate as the 100% scheduler rate? It is, um, and that's that's important to note because it is the way VA calculates the combined rating, it's very difficult actually to achieve a 100% scheduler rating based solely on combining the different disabilities that the veteran may be service-connected for. Mm-hmm. So as you said, this is an alternative path to still being paid at the 100% maximum rate. Um, and it's important to note that with TDIU, um, as we said, the veteran needs to be able to show that his or her service-connected disabilities um, were the cause or prevented um, the veteran from securing or following substantial gainful employment with a 100% combined rating. That's not necessarily the case. Um, and so those are important distinctions to keep in mind when um, considering both paths. Great. And Barbara, Mike had just mentioned that um, proving entitlement to TDIU stems on showing that you are unable to secure or follow the um, the phrase substantially gainful employment, I think is what he used. Can you tell us more about um, what that phrase means and what veterans need to do to show that they should be successful in a TDIU case? Sure. They, the VA has to look at a whole range of characteristics and traits that the veteran has. Um, They will look at his education, they will look at his vocational background, they call it, meaning his work experience. They will not look at his age, Um, but then they want to look at very specifically the limitations caused by the veteran's service-connected disability or disabilities, just those. Non-service-connected disabilities are not considered. Uh, other things such as the the reason the veteran retired may or may not be are probably not relevant. It's really just looking at the limitations. And typically this comes from both the veteran's 
uh, own description or people who know the descriptions of people who know him or her and uh, the CNP, the Compensation and Pension Examinations, in which the VA medical professional will describe what those limitations are. For example, is the, is the uh, claimant able to sit for very long periods of time, stand? Mm-hmm. Um, does the person have problems concentrating? Things of that nature. All those concepts that are relevant to whether the person can actually work successfully at a substantially gainful employment position. Mm -hmm. And I think, thank you for mentioning earlier too, that um, the focus for pretty much the entirety of the discussion is on service-connected conditions. So when we say TDIU benefits, um, these are, the determination about TDIU is based on your service-connected disabilities without consideration for non-service-connected things. Um, And you mentioned that there are multiple components that factor into whether a veteran can work. Some components are physical in nature, some are non-exertional or mental, you might say, that deal with concentration impairment, uh, memory impairment, things like that. But one um, type of work that we see a lot, I think, in, in cases is the concept of sedentary work. Can you tell us about what sedentary work is and how that factors in here? Sure. Sedentary work is a term that is used by the Department of Labor as well as Social Security Administration and is now starting to be used by the Department of Veterans Affairs. And it describes the, the, a physical uh, or exertional, as you called it, level of, of work. In other words, work is, is, can be, and under the Department of Labor and Social Security rules, is divided into what they call exertional levels. And so it ranges from sedentary, which is the easiest type of physical work, up to heavy work. So for example, a construction worker is doing heavy exertional work whereas a carpenter or a truck driver might be doing medium physical exertional work. Uh, A receptionist who is sitting for most of the time Mm -hmm. is doing what the um, Social Security and the Department of Labor would consider sedentary work. And they have a very specific definition for it that under a recent case called Ravy Wilkie, VA is required to consider. And the, the specific definition for sedentary work is that it means that the person um, is a, must be able to sit for up to uh, up to two thirds of the eight hour working day, but also may be required to stand or walk for the remaining one third of the day. They also must be able to lift and carry up to 10 pounds for um, as much as a third of that day. So it's not, it's not just a job where the person is just sitting nonstop because what the Department of Labor and Social Security have determined is that there are no such jobs as that. It really is all jobs require some physical exertion and, inc- and even sedentary work, which as I said is the lowest exertional level of work, requires that there be some sitting I mean, excuse me, some some standing mm-hmm. and some walking. And it's important to understand that this is just the exertional level. This is just the physical characteristic of the work that, as you mentioned, there are non-exertional or mental components 
to work as well, such as the ability to concentrate, the ability to be productive, the ability to just show up, to be mm -hmm. reliable if a person is not able to um, to come to work on a reliable basis because of the service-connected disability or disabilities, then they, even if they can do very heavy work, they may not be they may be eligible for unemployability benefits because their inability to just show up and be productive is precluded by virtue of the service-connected disability. Mm -hmm. So as Barbara's explaining, um, and I think it's pretty easy to see that there is a lot going on when you talk about whether someone can work. Um, a common error that we see, I think, in VA decisions is that they think that if a veteran can physically perform sedentary work, then that's good enough. They're not entitled to TDIU benefits. But as Barbara's you know, explained, um, sedentary work also has exertional requirements, physical requirements that you have to meet. It's not simply in a seated position all day without any other strenuous activities to perform. Um, and then there's also the other things such as the non-exertional limitations and then all of these limitations are the types of things that you want to be documented in your file that are going to be helpful if you are seeking unemployability benefits. We'll get into evidence later on, we'll get into more specifics about what kind of evidence is important. Um, but thank you for explaining that. These are not easy concepts and ones that VA commonly gets wrong. Um, we have a question. Before we take the question, I just also wanted to mention that we have materials posted on our website, which is at cck-law.com. So please feel free to utilize any of the videos and blog posts that are on that website. We have done TDIU videos and blogs in the past, so those will be there for your reference. Um, and so our question today is from Lexa. Thanks, Lexa, for your question. Lexa wants to know, how does TDIU apply to SMC, which is special monthly compensation? Is there a standard way to get there, or is it better to get a full 100% rating and then try to go for a special monthly compensation? Well, this is, a, this is definitely a complicated issue, mm -hmm. but I think <laughs> at the outset, it should be said that TDIU and SMC are, are separate benefits, right? So um, just because a veteran may not have TDIU doesn't necessarily preclude them from obtaining some form of SMC, and there are various forms of SMC. Um, and so, and likewise, just because a veteran has TDIU doesn't necessarily entitle them to SMC. So the two don't necessarily go hand in hand. Um, you know, one example I can see, one example I see in our practice here quite often is um, aid in attendance. And so this is a benefit, uh, an SMC benefit that can be granted when it's shown that the veteran is in need of regular aid and attendance from another to perform, you know, perf uh, the functions of daily living, if you will. Um, and so, you know, these things may go in hand in hand with the veteran's ability to or inability to work, but not necessarily. So they're really, they're, I would say they're somewhat separate concepts um, and benefits that surely are interrelated, but, um, you know, one doesn't necessarily lead to the next. On the other hand, they can interact mm -hmm. in a very positive and helpful way. Um, a, a very obvious example is the person who is getting SMC based on housebound benefits, for example. If the person is truly housebound, it's not likely that they are able to engage in substantially gainful employment. Similarly, if the person has, suffers loss of use mm -hmm. of a hand, both hands, one or both legs, that excuse me obviously impacts and 
likely in, precludes the ability to do substantially gainful employment. I, I agree, and thank you both for, for um, explaining that. SMC is a difficult area. There are a lot of different requirements. Mm -hmm. SMC benefits can be, um, they sort of can sometimes act as a ladder where you can move from one lower level to a higher level. Um, there's some math that, that comes into play, but I think in terms of strategy, in terms of thinking about what benefit you want to pursue, um, you really don't need to choose one over the other. You don't need to focus on one before you're able to focus on the other. And as Barbara said, a lot of the evidence will be overlapping. So um, if you think that you are trying to seek both types of benefits, um, it might be worthwhile to work on submitting evidence that shows the limitations that both types of benefits require and then some of that evidence might be duplicative or um, relevant to both things and so it'll already be in the record. Great. Anything anyone else want to add before we move on? No, I think that covers it. Perfect. Mike, tell us now about the VA Form 21-8940. <laughs> um, so this is the form that VA often requires um, to be submitted in connection with requests for TDIU. So tell us about the form, what it requires, and how important it is. Sure. It is, it is very important, and um, it's a mechanism that VA uses to collect additional information from the veteran, um, a veteran seeking TDIU benefits. So it includes um, a section for the veteran to fill out their work history, for example, their educational attainment. Um, it includes sections where the veteran is to provide the date they feel they became too disabled to continue working, um, the day they last worked. Um, and it's a form that VA does require um, in order to, at least at the regional office level, to adjudicate TDIU in the first instance many times. Um, it's The form itself, though it's technically called an application for increased compensation based on unemployability, it's not actually a, a claim in the same sense that you would file a claim for an increased rating, say. Um, TDIU in and of itself is not, you know, a claim for, I'm sorry, TDIU is not in and of itself a separate claim. Um, it's part of an underlying claim or appeal for an increased rating. So, you know, the 8940 is very important because it does provide that function of providing VA with additional information. Uh, again, regarding prior work history and level of educational attainment, but it's not necessarily, strictly speaking, a claim in and of itself. That makes sense. So uh, there was another recent case that um, was decided this year or late last year, Harper versus Wilkie, that talks about how um, TDIU attaches to pending increased rating claims. There's other law that says that, but... Um, that's one recent case where they emphasize that if you are seeking a higher rating for a certain disability, um, TDIU is sort of part of that increased rating claim whenever it's raised by the record or explicitly raised by the claimant. So the 8940 is one way to explicitly raise the issue. Yep. Um, and as Mike said, it's important to return the form if VA asks for it. Um, it's kind of, it has a weird status where a lot of importance is attached to it. And sometimes we see VA denying claims um, solely because the veteran doesn't fill out the 8940. So it's really important to get that in the record. Um, in addition to explicitly raising 
TDIU with the 8940? Um, are there ways, other ways to raise the issue such that VA is required to consider entitlement to TDIU? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So if a veteran has an ongoing claim and there's evidence in the veteran's file that implicates um, the veteran's service connected kind of disabilities have in some way contributed to or caused the veteran's um, or prevented the veteran's ability to you know maintain or obtain substantially gainful employment the issue of TDIU can be what's called raised by the record or mm -hmm. the evidence and record um, you know it's not explicitly stated maybe the veteran hasn't submitted the 8940 but the evidence shows that uh, either the regional office or the board should address the issue. Um, you know, the court has held that whenever a veteran is seeking an increased rating uh, or appeals a decision for an increased rating, they're implicitly seeking the highest or maximum benefit under the law, and that includes TDIU. Um, so really, VA has an obligation to consider TDIU anytime it's deciding a claim for an increased rating uh, whenever there's evidence in the record that um, that indicates that's the case. Um, one important point about the 8940 that I'd like to, to mention, despite the fact that the 8940 is not in and of itself, a, technically speaking, a claim for TDIU, VA oftentimes treats it as such. And so for effective date purposes, unfortunately, VA oftentimes will get this wrong and assign, if they do grant TDIU, they will assign an effective date for TDIU based on the date that the veteran submitted the 8940 form. Um, you know, there are numerous cases that, you know, you can look to and you should look to to, to help get around that error. But unfortunately, at least what I've seen in my practice is that the reality is many times the regional offices, you know, will treat the 8940 as a claim and assign an effective date from that date. Mm -hmm. So let me just follow up on your comments about um, the reasonably raised concept of TDIU or unemployability mm -hmm. if the person has not submitted the actual form, because some ways that that can be what VA calls reasonably raised by the record mm -hmm. is if, for example, the veteran submits evidence from Social Security, the Social Security mm -hmm. determination, finding that the person is disabled, at least in part, as a result of a service-connected condition. Another example would be if he has applied for vocational rehabilitation benefits through VA and they have said that they don't believe that he can work. Mm -hmm. Another example is if the veteran himself, just on his claim form, says, I can't work, or if a doctor or a medical professional notes he recently retired or was forced to retire due to service-connected disabilities. So there's multiple ways that that can be raised by the record, even though the veteran has not submitted the, the actual form. Right, and in addition to TDIU being such a great benefit on, on its own, one of the good things about it is that it can attach in this way to increase rating claims and can be reasonably raised by the evidence. So. Right. Um, if you don't get around to filling out the 8940 until a certain date and time, it doesn't necessarily mean that that has to be the effective date at all um, for TDIU. You have to take a, a closer look at the claim stream and the procedural history of the claims that are on appeal and the evidence that was submitted uh, with that claim stream. So, And it's a critical benefit because mm -hmm. I, I think it's about twice what the 90% rating is at this point. Yeah, you know, it, I think it's about, if I had to, I think it's about $1,200 more. Um, so it's significant. Per month, yeah, right. Per, per month, I'm sorry, mm -hmm. yes, per month. So it's a significant increase 
from a 90% combined rating. And as we, as I said earlier, the way VA math works um, is that it is very difficult for a veteran who has a 90% combined rating to then achieve a 100% combined rating solely by you know filing a claim or appealing an increased rating of an individual service-connected disability. So TDIU really is, I think of it as a shortcut in a sense to getting paid maximum benefit under the law um, outside of certain additional SMC benefits, but you know what's typically considered the maximum benefit under the law. Um, it's a great way to get there if the evidence is in your favor um, and, and you can show that solely, you know, your service-connected disability solely caused or contributed to um, your inability to obtain or maintain substantially gainful employment. I, I like that you call it a shortcut. I think of it also as a way of um, making up for the fact that VA does have this funny math yeah. when they do their combined ratings that, you know, they don't just add the disabilities together. Mm -hmm. If you're a 40% and a 60%, that's not 100% mm -hmm. based on VA's, uh, what, what I do call their funny math. So. <laughs> and it's frustrating math too, because sometimes you're at a 90% rating combined and you're still seeing grants a 10% grant for this condition, an increased rating for that condition. And it's so, so very hard to get to the 100% number. And it can be really discouraging to watch all of the 10s pile up between 90 and 100. We see this sometimes. And sometimes people just don't understand why um, that isn't adding up to any additional monthly benefits, but it's just the way that the, the math system works. I think we have a separate video on um, combined ratings and VA math. That's probably one to watch if you think that this might apply to your situation, if you're confused about how your combined rating and your monthly payment is coming out. But um, yeah, I agree. This is, this is why TDIU can be so crucial because even if you only have 60% combined or 70% combined, something like that, hypothetically speaking, um, this is a way to get paid at a higher rate. Um, and dovetailing with that, you were talking about evidence before. We've kind of been talking about evidence throughout. Let's talk about some specific examples. What kind of evidence should claimants submit if they are working on a TDIU claim, generally speaking? What kind of evidence does VA respond to? Uh, so there are a number of pieces of evidence. Um, you know, we see lay statements are quite effective in detailing um, how, based on the veteran's personal knowledge of their service-connected disabilities, each one of those disabilities impacts their ability to, to work. Um, you know, in addition, laying out the veteran's work history in a lay statement can really be helpful. If the veteran hasn't worked from a certain date, you know, we can obtain Social Security records, which offer evidence to show that, yes, in fact, the veteran actually has not been working since that date. Um, so Social Security records are important, uh, earning statements, rather. Um, lay statements are always helpful, you know, but I think more than any other piece of evidence, a vocational expert, if you can get one, is probably the, the best piece of evidence that you can have um, when you're filing or appealing the TDIU issue. And sometimes that can come from the Social Security, a favorable Social Security decision. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes you can hire someone to do that, but it also can come from these references that I was talking about before. The, uh, the Social Security rule, the Department of Labor rule, defining what some of these exertional limits are, these physical limitations, inability to, if you have evidence, for example, that you truly are not able to stand or walk for more than um, two hours a day, then 
under Social Security's de- due to your service-connected disability. Mm-hmm. Social Security's definition would say that then you are not able to work. And so just even just submitting that, which is another form of vocational evidence, mm-hmm. can be helpful in terms of showing that you're not able to perform substantially gainful employment. So in addition to the lay statements, Mike, and thank you for explaining that, lay statements are can be very critical if they come from persons that are competent to speak to the veteran's limitations, including the veteran him or herself. That can be very persuasive evidence. But a lot of times veterans will have CMP exams and they'll be sent for a lot of CMP exams over the years and all types of doctors will talk about their various conditions and will hopefully um, have good evidence in those reports about what functional impairments result from service-connected disabilities. But Barb, why um, is a vocational, why is vocational evidence so important in TDIU cases as opposed to medical evidence? Well, the medical ec- expert, the medical professional, whether it's a physician, a, a psychologist, a nurse practitioner, those people can defi- can help define what the actual limitations the person has. That's a person who can contribute information about this person can only lift five pounds. This person is not able to stand for more than an hour. This person needs to shift between sitting and standing. Those are the actual limitations that the that the claimant, the veteran has. But the issue of how that then translates into the ability to work is a vocational question. In other words, it, it requires knowledge about what does work require, mm-hmm. what what skills are needed, and what physical and mental capacities are needed for that. So a medical professional typically does not have training or experience in that any more than they have typically have training or experience in law or plumbing or mm-hmm. any of the uh, any other profession mm-hmm. they are medical experts they understand how the body works and that's their area of expertise they don't understand typically how work works and so mm-hmm. that's why a vocational expert becomes or vocational evidence becomes critical in mm-hmm. order to translate those limits into whether the person is therefore able or unable to perform substantially gainful employment. Great. Anything um, either of you wanted to add to the evidence discussion? No, I think that's a that's a, a great point. Um, and you know, just going back to lay statements for a moment. <clears throat> excuse me. You know, a veteran can't, for that very reason, state that he or she is unable to work because of the service connected disabilities. They're not competent to make that determination, but they can very clearly lay out. I'm able to stand for X amount of time. I'm able to walk a certain amount of distance. And those factual um, those factual findings, if you will, then can be used in the case by somebody that is competent to opine on vocational issues to connect the dots and, and then show why the veteran may not be able to work due to their service-connected disabilities. And similarly, the veteran can say, I was fired or let go or not hired because I couldn't they told me I couldn't do the requirements of the job. They know that that happened to them, but as Mike said, they can't make that next leap. Mm-hmm. So I was just going to say, I think in a nutshell, um, any evidence that is competent and has bearing on limitations caused by service-connected disabilities, and in addition, uh, vocational evidence, those are really the critical pieces, I think, for for these types of claims. Definitely. We have another question. Um, This one's from Javier. Javier, thank you for your question. The question is, 
So you don't need to be 100% to get TDIU. And that is correct. Um, this is what we had touched on earlier. Um, you don't need to have a 100% scheduler rating, meaning that all of your service-connected disability ratings mm -hmm. don't need to combine to 100 in order to receive TDIU. TDIU will pay you at the 100% rate, and in that way, a 100% rating and TDIU are similar. But it has a different set of parameters. So for a 100% scheduler rating, combined scheduler rating, um, that is the collection of all of your different disability ratings that come out to 100. For TDIU, the question is whether your service-connected conditions um, in combination render you unable to work. So VA is looking at two different things and there's two different ways, two different paths to get to the 100% rating, um, but you don't have to have a certain rating at all to get TDIU. In fact, um, some something that we see common, and we had saved this for later, but we might as well talk about it now, is that sometimes VA will say that your scheduler ratings are not high enough to justify an award of TDIU. VA has a certain scheduler rating threshold for TDIU cases. It's a little bit complicated. I know we have a blog about this. I think it's called an extra scheduler TDIU um, blog post. But basically, there's a threshold rating where VA will say that they can consider TDIU um, without sending your case through an extra administrative hoop. If you're at a lower rating level, you have to go through the extra administrative hoop. I'm, I'm simplifying and you know generalizing, so correct me if I say anything wrong, but you, you don't have to have any particular type of rating. You just have to have service-connected conditions that affect the ability to work. So if you ever see a decision that says your rating isn't high enough, that's not something that they can do um, on their own to deny TDIU. Yeah, that's 100% that's accurate. Really, the fundamental question is, do your service-connected disabilities and your service-connected disabilities alone um, preclude you from obtaining and maintaining substantially gainful employment regardless of your combined disability rating? Um, that's the fundamental inquiry. Perfect. Um, Barb, what about veterans that are employed? Is there any way that a veteran who is employed can receive TDIU benefits? And if so, under what circumstances might that happen? The answer, the short answer is yes, there is. And as Mike just said, the focus is always on whether, <clears throat> excuse me, the um, service-connected disabilities prevent the person from working. And so if a person is earning less than the poverty level, which right now is about $12,000 a year, the poverty level for one, if the person is working and earning less than that, and the reason they're, work, they're earn, only able to earn that much money is because of their service-connected disability, then they can be considered eligible for TDIU under what VA calls marginal employment. Mm -hmm. The other way that people who are working can obtain TDIU, even if their income is above that poverty level, is if they are in what VA calls a protected work environment. And a protected work environment has yet to be defined by VA. They are struggling, to say the least, and every board decision we see has a different definition of it. But at CCK, we think that it means at least that the person is receiving unreasonable accommodations. In other words, the employer is um, making changes to the essential functions of the person's job, not demanding that the person be as productive as other people, allowing the person more time off than typically is permitted, and yet paying the person the same amount as if they were as productive, as if they were showing up 
as often as other people. And it really does relate, though, to the essential functions of the job. Mm -hmm. um, some people choose to work in situations, for example, where they are working completely alone, a nighttime security guard, long distance truck driver, that sort of thing, because that's the way they feel that they work the best. Mm -hmm. But assuming they are making more than the poverty level, they're not in a protected work environment because that's the nature of the job, right? But if they have a if a person has a job where typically people are supposed to come eight to five, five days a week, but the employer lets the veteran not show up one day a week and yet pays him for that time or uh, take a couple hours off every week in order to go to therapy sessions, all those sorts of things, the more they make changes that are uh, inroads in the actual job description, the more likely it is that the person can be viewed as working in, like I say, what's called a protected work environment and still receive TDIU in addition to their income from their job. Okay. And we actually have a question um, now that's that's relevant to this. This one is from Lexa. I'm not sure if it's the same Lexa, but if so, uh, thank you for hanging in there with us today. Uh, Lexa is asking, if you own your own business, is that considered a protected work environment? Barb, do you want to take this one? Well, those are always challenging <clears throat> questions because uh, because it's very hard to show that the employer is making the accommodations, right? And that mm. they are necessary. And so typically in those situations, you are going to need uh, a, a, to go back to having a vocational expert explain that this is the only situation that you can be employed in. But they're very, self-employment is a very challenging type of employment to show is protected. Okay, that helps. Um, seems pretty fact specific. Definitely. Okay. And there was a case, you said before that VA has yet to define what work in a protected environment means. Um, surprising. And you <laughs> recently um, were involved in a case that dealt with that very issue. So um, can you tell us a little bit about that case and maybe what we can gain from it, even if not a definition of what protected work is? The name of that, sure, the name of that case is Cantrell. Mm -hmm. And uh, in Mr. Cantrell's case, he was working full time um, I, as a park ranger, but he, uh, he had significant disabilities that required that he take breaks and that sometimes he go home that sometimes he have to he would have to leave the scene uh, or and call in other co-workers to help mm -hmm. all of these were things that other people on staff were typically not permitted to do but his employer valued him and valued the fact that he had um, been a vet was a veteran mm -hmm. and so he worked with uh, mr. Cantrell to allow him to continue to work despite all those kinds of significant accommodations that were being made. And so initially VA denied the claim without defining it and the Veterans Court issued a decision instructing VA to come up with a, a, a decent definition of what protected work environment meant and made it clear that the fact that he was working full time was not a reason to deny him benefits. Excellent. And in addition to vocational evidence, with, which I think is particularly important in protected work cases, 
um, since there's expertise that's needed to mm-hmm. render opinions. Um, but I guess for anyone who's not able to obtain a vocational expert, um, evidence that might be relevant if you are alleging that you work in a protected environment would have to have bearing on um, what types of accommodations are being made at work, um, how they deviate from the job description, how they differ from other employees, um, things that the employer is doing at the employer's own expense, things like that. Would you agree? Yes, definitely. I mean, there are, there are um, documents such as, as you referenced, written job descriptions, mm-hmm. um, union contracts, those sorts of things that explain what the job is. You can get statements from people who used to hold the job or people who are doing the same job that you're doing to explain what that you're not really doing everything that people who typically are in the job are doing and yet you're getting paid the same amount. Mm-hmm. Just a reminder to everyone, we're here today at Chisholm, Chisholm and Kilpatrick. My name's Maura Clancy. I'm here with Barbara Cook and Mike Lestrito. Today we're talking about TDIU. If you've been tuned in with us um, throughout this discussion, we appreciate it and we hope you stay with us. And if you're just joining us um, and have any questions about anything, feel free to visit our website at cck-law.com. Mike, I'm going to come back to you. Sure. Um, A question that we see a lot is whether TDIU benefits are considered permanent when they're awarded. Can you tell us about um, whether that's true or what to look for to know the answer to that question? Sure. So the answer is they can be, but not always. Um, TDIU by its nature is considered a a total um, disability because it's rated at 100%. Um, or effectively rated at the 100% level, but it's not necessarily permanent, meaning it will continue on into the future forever. Um, You'll typically know based on the decision that grants TDIU, if it also grants uh, what's called um, DEA benefits, that's an indication that the TDIU grant is permanent in nature. Um, But like I said, it's not always permanent. And so what VA had done <clears throat> excuse me, in the past was send out an annual form. It, I think it was 4140, form 4140. Um, and that was a form, it was an employment verification form. And essentially the veteran was required to complete the form, let VA know whether they had been working during any period for the past year, um, and submit the form. And if they hadn't been working, typically their TDIU benefits would continue. If they had been working for a one year period or greater, then they may be at risk of potentially losing the TDIU benefit that they had been granted. Um, VA no longer uses this form. They now have replaced this with a um, income verification through the Social Security Administration. So if, if you're a veteran and you've previously received Form 4140 and you no longer are doing so, you know that's the reason why. Um, but really, the, I think the fundamental question is if a veteran's receiving TDIU and they're worried about it, Um, being taken away if it's not permanent. Um, It's really whether there's a reasonable likelihood that the veteran in VA's eye, that the veteran is going to be able to return to work, working substantially gainful employment um, in the future. And so if for whatever reason, you know, a veteran goes to an appointment and uh, there's some evidence that indicates improvement in their condition or uh, some type of evidence, evidence that shows or VA thinks shows that they can return to work, then it's possible at least that um, they could re-examine the TDIU grant from the past. 
Um, but you know, if TDIU is permanent, like I said, it'll typically show up on the rating decision stating that the veteran has also been granted DEA benefits from a certain date. That's a good indication that TDIU um, is, is considered permanent in VA's eyes. And sometimes I think they even include language that says this will or will not be subject to future yes. reexamination, something like that. It's not it's not entirely consistent, um, but that's another thing to look out for. So go ahead. Yeah, they don't make it entirely clear or easy. Unfortunately, they mm-hmm. don't. From what I've seen, they don't have a separate finding that says your TDIU grant is permanent, and it's it's there very clear. Um, unfortunately, you have to read between the lines oftentimes. And yes. Um, if the veteran, if it indicates in the decision that the veteran is potentially going to be scheduled for a future examination, that's an indication that the grant is not in fact permanent. Um, on the other hand, if the decision says that the veteran will not be subject to a future examination, that's an indication that the grant of TDIU is in fact permanent. Barb, can you talk to us about the interplay, if any, between TDIU and SSDI? or Social Security Disability Insurance Benefits? Sure. So, as I mentioned before, sometimes the evidence or even the decision in a Social Security Disability claim uh, can be helpful in a TDIU situation. VA sometimes will use it against the claimant because if, for example, Social Security denies the benefit, uh, denies Social Security Disability Benefits, based on the Social Security's findings that the service-connected condition is not that severe, VA will use that against the person. But if they've granted, if Social Security's granted it based on that, Mm -hmm. then that's very strong evidence that TDIU should be awarded. In terms of income, um, a, a, a claimant can receive both Social Security disability and TDIU They cannot get both, typically are not going to be able to get both uh, SSI, Supplemental Security Income, and TDIU, since Supplemental Security Income is a needs-based program. Mm -hmm. And so once, if if TDIU starts, and the rate for TDIU is, I think, about 2,800, is it? I think it's closer to 3,200 at this point. Yeah. And so... SSI is far lower than that, and mm-hmm. so uh, the the person is not going to be able to collect both SSI and TDIU. Sorry, I was just going to jump That's in. Okay. You had me thinking when you mentioned needs-based. Um, I think it's important to point out that TDIU is not a needs-based right. uh, benefit. Mm-hmm. So, you know, regardless of how much or how little the veteran may have in a bank account or uh, personal wealth, that's really not at issue and won't be examined by VA. It really comes down to that ability to work. Mm-hmm. Definitely. So a favorable uh, SSDI decision that talks about service-connected conditions might be relevant, persuasive, depending on how in-depth it is as to the veteran service-connected disabilities, uh, but it's not necessarily dispositive. So just because you're eligible for SSDI and just because they mention your service-connected disabilities in awarding you that benefit doesn't necessarily mean that VA has to grant you TDIU. Correct. When you say dispositive, exactly. It means that it's not going to dispose of, it's not going to end the TDIU assessment. VA will still do its own assessment separate and apart 
from Social Security's assessment. Mm -hmm. Okay. And we have, um, relevant to this topic, we have another question from Lexa. Hi, Lexa. Thank you again for watching us today. Um, the question is, are there asset restrictions for TDIU? Mike, I think you touched on this by saying that no, there are not. Correct. Yeah, TDIU is not a what's called a needs-based program, um, such as pension benefits and other benefits. It really... It, it can be awarded regardless of how much or how little the veteran has in personal wealth. Mm -hmm. um, and so the, the real determination comes down to whether the veteran is able to work due to their service-connected disabilities, and that's the inquiry. It, it doesn't matter how much necessarily the veteran has um, in bank accounts or you know, in real estate or any of those things. Another thing that doesn't and shouldn't matter in TDIU cases is the age of the claimant, right, Mike? So um, we do see, this is another mistake that we see sometimes, if a veteran is asking for TDIU and they have retired many years ago, sometimes VA makes the mistake of saying, well, they're retired and they're of retirement age, so no, no TDIU. Tell us about the role that age plays, if any, and if, what, what you should do if you see that mistake. Yeah, so uh, put simply, age is not, it's not supposed to be a consideration when considering whether TDIU is warranted. Um, you know, in our practice here, we often see, uh, you know, veterans who have retired, um, maybe due to age, um, but that really shouldn't be a factor in determining whether TDIU is warranted. It's, it's, it's solely an inquiry as to the service-connected disabilities and how those uh, translate into, you know, impairment on the veteran's ability to work. Um, and so that goes both ways because we also see veterans who are, you know, you're, they're young, maybe they're in their mid to late 20s, um, and they may think that TDIU is not available to them because, you know, they're young and, you know, you know there's a high emphasis in society on being able to go out and work. And so, you know, the benefit might not be available to them, but that's also incorrect. It's, it's really not, age is really not a factor one way or the other in the uh, determination as to whether TDIU is warranted. Great, that's helpful. Um, and in 2017, I think it was, there was a discussion about adding an age limit to TDIU benefits. So sort of along the lines of the mistake that we see sometimes from VA, which is just that um, if you're at a certain age and you've retired, they, you know, sometimes they make the mistake of factoring that too heavily into a decision to deny. So they had proposed an age limit um, a couple years ago. Do you know what's happened since then? Yeah, so in the budget a few years back, they proposed to stop paying out TDIU benefits to veterans um, who otherwise qualified once the age of retirement hit. And so this was, uh, you know, this was proposed in the budget, but there were there was, as you can imagine, a large backlash, um, and many veterans groups, uh, you know, came to the defense of veterans. And the current state is that I believe they've backtracked from that proposal. So. Uh, my understanding is, you know, currently that proposal is 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 basically dead. I hope that's the case. Uh, that was a terrible idea, in my opinion, <laughs> and I'm I'm sure you both agree. But yeah, that that's a question that we do see sometimes. I know, Mike, you you've seen it from people before. Sure. There there is no age limit now. Um, no definitive plans for an age limit to come into play anytime soon. We'll certainly stay updated on that if that does come back into focus. Um, you can bet that we'll be all over it, I think, because we all feel pretty strongly about it. Uh, but it's not a thing now, which is good. 
Um, and I want to wrap up by talking to you both about common pitfalls in TDIU cases. So what are some mistakes that VA frequently makes? And we've talked about a few of these already today, but um, just to wrap it up, we might touch on some of those same things again. And in addition, what are some mistakes or uh, misunderstandings that a claimant who's seeking TDIU benefits can avoid? What, what types of things should they know in proceeding with their claims? Uh, so we've already touched on it, but if VA requests that you fill out a VA, uh, excuse me, a 8940 form, you should fill out the 8940 form and return it. Um, you know, despite the fact that, again, like we said, it's it's not technically a claim for TDIU or it shouldn't be treated as such. You know, practically speaking, VA is going to require um, that you fill out the form and submit it for them to adjudicate TDIU. So it's important that you provide them with an accurate description as to your work history, your accurate level of educational attainment, the date you last worked, um, make sure it's as consistent as possible with what you've already submitted um, and, and submit it in a timely manner. I would say that's the first thing. Um, the second thing is, and we've talked a lot about this already as well, VA will oftentimes look to a non-service connected disability and use that as the reason why the veteran is unable to work. So, for instance, maybe the veteran has a very severe psychiatric disability that's service-connected, um, but also has a non-service-connected back disability. Um, and yes, it may be true that that non-service-connected back disability has some impact on the veteran's ability to work. But remember, the central inquiry here is whether the service-connected disabilities and only the service-connected disabilities alone are the cause of the veteran's unemployability. So VA is required to focus just in on the psychiatric disability that's service-connected and render the decision based on that. So if you see in a decision they are wandering off and considering non-service-connected disabilities and perhaps weighing those in favor of them denying your, your claim, you should absolutely look to appeal that and point that out. Um, similarly, we see veterans, unfortunately, that may draft a lay statement or an affidavit and include all of their disabilities, whether they're service-connected or non-service-connected, as the potential cause for their unemployability. So it's really important, again, just to remember that really your focus should be on service-connected disabilities and the impact that those have on your ability to work. The other, another piece is that VA will, in almost every case, schedule the veteran for an examination and an assessment of the limitations, sometimes asking the physician to give an opinion as to whether the person can or can't work. There's a couple things about that. One is that as with every exam that uh, a claimant goes through, the veteran should be absolutely honest about what's going on. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's not a social occasion, right? The, mm -hmm. You walk in, the doctor says, how are you doing today? If you say, I'm doing great or I'm fine, that gets written down even though you're in excruciating pain. Um, you know, it's best to be honest. Today's a good day, but it's the first good day I've had for the past month. Or today's a good day even though I didn't sleep well last night. Or what, whatever the truth is, is absolutely critical. And I think it's particularly hard in unemployability cases because, as Mike mentioned, there's a, a large emphasis in our society on being able to work and the pride that goes with work. And so it's, I think it's difficult for some people to say, I really cannot work any longer. 
And yet, if that's the case, that's what that's what the person should explain. If they, it, lots of times, I think people say, "Well, I I can work because they want to work, mm -hmm. and and their their heart is in it, mm -hmm. but that physically or mentally they really are not able to work." And so, people just have to be aware of, like I say, being honest and as precise as possible about what they're talking about. Mm -hmm. Another piece about that is that, as I said, the doctors are sometimes asked to give an opinion as to whether the person can work, that ultimate question in the case. But as we've discussed, that person is typically not competent to describe that. They're only competent to talk about the limits that the individual has, not how that then plays into the ability to work. And sometimes I think something we see across the board is the <clears throat> Um, unwarranted or undue emphasis on medical evidence over lay statements. Sometimes a lay statement can be just as um, important or pertinent to a veteran's limitations. Um, sometimes they kind of gloss over the lay statements in favor of things that are written down by doctors, but that's not necessarily fair or true. Um, sometimes the lay statements, if they're from competent persons, can be very helpful in adjudicating these claims. They also say sometimes that you're not at the right schedule or rating, so you aren't entitled to TDIU. As we explained earlier, there's no schedule or rating minimum. The question is whether your service-connected disabilities and the effects that come from those are keeping you from working. And I think the other thing that we had mentioned before was not focusing on the combination of just the service-connected conditions. As Mike mentioned before, something that we see all the time is if there's any reason to think that um, there's a non-service connected disability in play that's going to get a lot of airtime in VA decisions um, and they like to go back to the non-service connected heart condition that's keeping you out of work and things like that. It, it's really important um, not only for VA but also for the, the person pursuing the claims to make sure that the focus is on the service connected limitations. And one of the other things that VA will focus on to the detriment to you know, in order to deny a claim, using mm -hmm. it to deny a claim, is they will note that the veteran worked up until he was able to retire. And so since they reason he could work, he or she could work before, then of course this person could work now. And so it's important to understand a couple of things about that. One is that obviously conditions can get worse. And so the fact that the person was able to work up until the time of retirement is not by itself evidence that they have the current ability to work. But the other thing to recognize, and this is where a lot of lay evidence and honest lay evidence again mm -hmm. comes into play, is that many people work to retirement. They're they're you know they they've been working as if they're in a in, in a marathon, right? And so they're able to get across the finish line but just barely. Mm -hmm. And the fact that they hung in there through the last year or couple of years or whatever, um, in order to get to retirement age, is not evidence that they were really as productive as they needed to be, or that they really do still have the current ability to engage in substantially gainful employment. Mm -hmm. And then, a, just another pitfall that I've seen um, when VA considers TIU going along with what we've already said also is VA really needs to account for the veterans' service-connected disabilities in combination or in totality as they all interrelate with one another um, and not consider them solely or separately related. 
So oftentimes we will see, unfortunately, VA will consider each condition separately and consider whether that condition alone will, um, that service connect condition alone will impact the veteran's unemployability. But really it's how they all relate to one another and work in totality um, to affect the veteran's ability to work. Mm -hmm. And the only other thing that I can think of, which we kind of touched on earlier, was that the 8940, when you submit it, that's not necessarily the date of your claim that sometimes VA will say. Um, first of all, TDIU isn't a freestanding claim. You can, you can ask for TDIU without any other claims pending, but if you have increased rating claims pending or even service connection claims that eventually get granted, IU, TDIU is is supposed, supposed to attach to those. So um, a mistake that we commonly see, especially in light of appeals reform, that has kind of thrown a whole other wrench into the operation um, with claims that existed or that were pending before appeals reform was implemented and 8940s that were filed around that time or shortly after. There is just no telling what you're going to get for an effective date. So um, definitely keep that in mind um, that TDIU can attach to any open and pending appeal for an increased rating. And don't be afraid to let VA know that they are doing the wrong thing if they're just giving it the effective date of the 8940. Yep, that's a great point. Getting TDIU is, is great, but make sure that you know the effective date as well mm -hmm. is correct as well. Anything else we want to add? I think we've covered everything. Yeah, I think that Excellent. Covers. Thank you both for thank joining you. me today. Uh, and thank you all for, for tuning in and for um, hanging out with us. And we'll see you next time. This episode of the Veterans Legal Lowdown was produced by Chisholm, Chisholm, and Kilpatrick, a law firm representing veterans nationwide in their VA disability claims. If you're interested in a free case evaluation with CCK, give us a call at 844-549-4500 or visit our website at cck-law.com.